The more you do trauma work, the more you open your eyes up to the pervasiveness of violence, oppression, racism, and that is such a driver for the kind of decision-making and the actions that people take. If we're going to do trauma work, we have to start to come to terms with how we are still a divided country that oppresses one another. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. A major focus of our work here is designing what are called alternatives to incarceration. Uh, those are programs that prosecutors and judges can make use of instead of defaulting to jail or prison. One of those alternatives you hear a lot about is treatment or, or therapy, using the moment when someone is caught up in the justice system to try and solve some of the problems that may have gotten them there. But we don't hear much about what that treatment looks like, how effective it is, and what the challenges are to um, conducting it in um, what is frankly the, the coercive context of the criminal justice system. So to cast some light on these questions from, I hope, a range of angles, I have two guests in studio today. Dr. Deborah Ketzel is an associate professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and uh, the co-author of an important book in this field called What Works and Doesn't in Reducing Recidivism. And Dr. Jacob Hom is a clinical psychologist, assistant professor of psychiatry, and the director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience at the Icon School of Medicine at New York City's Mount Sinai. Uh, Deborah, Jacob, thanks so much to both you guys for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Jacob, you're here in part because of the work you've done with young people in our justice programs um, and to talk about what's called trauma-informed therapy, and that's a concept that I, I hope we're going to get into a little bit more. But you've also told me that you're uncomfortable being turned to as some kind of uh, expert, and so I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, reticence, if that's the word, and it also seems like it's a reticence that informs the, the, the kind of work that, that you do in this field, in fact. Yeah, I feel like I need to give a qualifier before I say anything declarative because um, at heart, I think that I am like as close to the work as possible. I um, do still do a lot of clinical work. And to be honest with you, I'm more an artist and a monastic than a scientist. So my the heart is in really like the the work itself. But at the same time, I, you know, I can I can get away with learning stuff and sounding like I've metabolized what I've learned. But I always put it aside whenever I'm actually doing the work. I'm constantly struggling with feeling like I don't know anything because the work is just so vibrant and uncertain when you're in in the muck of it. But then when you pull out and you see what other people know, then I'm like, wait a minute, I actually do know something. That's the tension that I'm constantly living with. I think. I mean, if we could tentatively plant a flag right now, what would you say you, you do know that of that something? Oh, the trauma-informed way is the way to go. And I don't know what that fully means because I'm still learning. But when you realize the impact of fear and horror on the way that the body operates and that the way that the mind operates and the way that we as human beings adapt to the world in terms of uh, survival, it makes a lot of sense of what happens with behavior and gives us a lot of hope for how to help people recover from that. Well, there's so much to follow up on and we're, 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 we're going to do that. Um, but I'll, I'll give Debbie a chance as well to introduce herself. And 
I guess, talk about your role in this world of advocating for treatment instead of incarceration or, or treatment sometimes as part of an uh, incarceration. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to get a sense more of what motivates you to do this work. And I'm certainly in talking to you beforehand and in, in seeing some of your other work, there's, it feels like there's a real sense of urgency for you. Yeah, I, I think that would be true. And, and I just want to echo Jacob's point. I think I also often feel like I know nothing. And I think part of that is that we as a field and as a discipline have such a long way to go. Having said that, when I was in graduate school, when I was doing my master's degree, I had the opportunity to, to do an internship at a medium security prison in Indiana. And then I and, – and it was great. I got to meet the people that were living in prison, learn their stories – hear about what they were expecting when they went home. Um, and then I continued working with the program. I would go back once a month and do a, a short talk on recognizing signs of child abuse and what to expect when you when you get home. And then I got to graduate school. I, I got to the University of Cincinnati where I did my PhD work and started learning about what the research said works in terms of reducing recidivism, in terms of helping people be successful when they return home from prison or, or when they're on supervision in the community. And I realized that nothing that we had been doing was empirically supported. And it was just kind of this slap to the face um, because I know all the people that were working with that program were really invested and committed and believed in what they were doing. And so I think that really sort of shapes my orientation. My interest all centers around the notion of helping people to be successful and recognizing that a lot of that is on how, how we make decisions, um, the types of interventions that we provide and so forth. And so I, I think that that kind of lesson then instilled in me this need um, or, or interest in wanting to translate the research into practice. And then so concretely today, this effort to translate the research into practice, how does that look like for you? Yeah, so in a couple of different ways. One, I, I still am an active researcher. I uh, do a lot of evaluations. I'm currently working, for example, with New York City Probation Department, evaluating a specialized unit for the supervision of 16 to 24-year-olds, which is a, a unique population that tends to have pretty high rates of recidivism. And so I engage in activities like those, but then I also provide a lot of technical support and assistance to programs. And so I'm working with a jurisdiction in Iowa, for example, where we've created a 10-year strategic plan for them to move that jurisdiction towards evidence-based practice. And so thinking about the nature of assessment, um, when assessment occurs, you know, getting people out of pretrial detention into the community. And so a whole host of types of activities. Jacob, could you if it's possible, I suppose, take us into the room a little bit into the kinds of conversations that you have with young people when you're speaking with young people who've been involved with the justice system? Yeah, I think um, I'm actually really glad that we're paired together because you come from what the evidence is showing us and guiding that. And I come from like, okay, I'm in front of a kid and what what's working, what applies and what is no one talking about? And I remember specifically one time when I was learning trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and I was like doing a trauma narrative for the first time with a woman who had been raped when she was 12 years old. And, um, you know, the manual gives you very kind of guidelines about what you're supposed to do, but no one tells you what it feels like the first time that she describes the event and the chills that go down in your spine and how 
how repulsive it is, like the way that your body reacts to it and the way that her body's reacting to it and the terror that just comes into the room. And that, to me, feels like the most important thing that we're overlooking in our evidence-based strategies. It's the actual experience of doing the work, of being in front of the most evil and horrible things that we can do to each other. And how do we bear seeing that without losing our minds ourselves, becoming traumatized ourselves, and holding on to hope and humanity and things like that. Um, so a lot of the a lot of my focus is on like being glad that people like you can like make sense of the of the big picture while I stay as close as to the work as possible. And and the other thing that happens to me is that um I have to metabolize my own traumas and how it shapes when I want to do more work or when I want to avoid the person. Like when I said that the trauma-informed um, approach is so important, the essential thing that I think is absolutely important for anyone to understand as, as we're actually reforming the criminal justice system is that there's actually a trauma state of mind. And it's like fear-based, risk-averse thinking. That, that's the way that they talk about it in other fields. But it has a huge impact on um, whether we overestimate risk, whether we pathologize another person, whether we take away their humanity, whether we just want to say, like, whatever, I don't care, this is too much, let's just put them all in prison, like, be done with it. Like, that energy is a trauma state of mind. And I spend all my time figuring out how to stay in a in the other state of mind. And, you know, other people call it various things, but I think the thing that makes sense to me is, like, the best self versus the stressed self. And um, just cultivating the capacity to stay in that state, even if my stressed self keeps rising up at the same time. Why is the, the trauma approach so particularly important when we're talking about people involved in the justice system? Jeez, uh, this is a huge one. And I don't have the statistics in front of me. I don't I mean, I don't need statistics. I mean, just your experience. Everyone's been, it's an it's a apocalypse of trauma. The more you do trauma work, the more you open your eyes up to the pervasiveness of violence, oppression, racism, all the things that deprive people of the basic human needs that we generally take for granted. And that is such a driver for the kind of decision-making and the actions that people take. Yeah, if, you're gonna, if we're going to do trauma work, we have to start to come to terms with how we are still a divided country that oppresses one another. And Debbie, I'm just wondering what you, what your reaction is to this idea of there are things that we can't capture so well in data, which I'm sure is not a, a new thought to you, but how that informs the the kind of empirical work that takes place in this field. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in some ways this goes back to my earlier comment that I also feel like we have a lot to learn. You know, our best approaches reduce recidivism 35, 40%. And, and that's significant and that's huge and that's meaningful. It's a lot of lives. It's a lot of lives and it's a lot of communities and people being impacted. But it's only 35 to 40%. And, you know, some of our, our our models like drug courts, for example, which I've done a lot of work on, they're held as a huge success. And we get on average about a 10, 15% reduction in recidivism. And so I think as a field, as a discipline, as a practice, we need to do better. And I suspect that part of that is 
to Jacob's point about thinking a little bit more about this role of trauma, the criminal justice system, I suspect, for many people induces trauma. You know, I, I've been in a lot of prisons and, and I'm there as a guest and I'm free to leave when I want to leave. And yet it's still always a little bit discombobulating. People end up there because of trauma or trauma symptoms get criminalized and then they're re-traumatized or and then they're in the re system. Absolutely. And I think I we also forget about the role of the people working in the system, which I think is so incredibly important. I've interviewed a lot of individuals. I, I don't do therapy, but I, I've sat down and I've talked to people about their experiences in treatment and prison and so forth. And, and I've heard stories that stick with you. I've looked at case files and even just sometimes reading the narratives and, and you read about things that no one should have to experience. And then you talk to staff who aren't equipped to deal with these situations and maybe in some cases aren't oriented towards a trauma-informed approach, that they're much more authoritative in their approach, they're much more punitive, you know, you deserve to be here type of type of attitude. And so I think all of that combines um, to hold us back a little bit in terms of what we can do. And, and so I think the role of trauma should not be underestimated. I think, though, the danger sometimes is that we forget that trauma is one piece of it and that we need to focus on trauma, but we still need to focus on criminogenic needs. We need to focus on, on good decision-making, on making sure that we're serving the right people with the right types of services and so forth, that it's not just trauma, although I certainly think an important piece. Yeah, I think of trauma-informed approaches as increasing our batting average by another 15% or something. 15, 20% or something like that. Exactly, which yeah. would be amazing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, these small incremental victories that we need to just keep adding up. Well, it sounded, Debbie, like you were beginning without saying the name to describe what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is another you know major school of thought here of a kind of treatment that can be used outside the criminal justice system, but is often used uh, within the system as well. So, you know, Jacob has talked a little bit about his trauma work. Do you want to then explain just the main components of, of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT? Sure. A good program really ultimately is going to help someone identify those situations, those places, those people, those things that are likely to lead them to trouble again. Um, and so a good cognitive behavioral program then really has two compo components. And part of that is focusing on the thinking, helping people to identify their thoughts that might lead them to trouble or, or start to kind of lead them down this path that then also ultimately gets them into trouble. So, so we would call that risky thinking or criminal thinking, or some people would talk about thinking errors, for example, uh, where we start to justify and rationalize our behavior. A good program is going to use exercises to help people identify those types of risky thoughts and how they relate to behaviors and the consequences of those behaviors. And if we can get people to start identifying those thoughts, then we can start replacing those thoughts. Um, so that's one piece of it. That's that's sort of the cognitive piece of it is recognizing that that link between thoughts, behaviors, and consequences. And sorry, it, and yeah. that's a kind of strategy that can be implemented. I, I don't I don't know if saying out of the box is too crass, but it can be implemented by someone who's not you know necessarily uh, a deeply qualified. Uh, clinical psychologist. Say. That's right. Um, it can be a social worker. I mean, it can be a probation officer. Is that 
Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think the important thing is that we train people on these techniques. And so when someone comes in for a visit, rather than do sort of the standard, do you still have a job? Have you moved any problems? You're good to go. I'll see you next time. Really ask what's going on in your life. Have you had any struggles? Is there anything you're worried about? Identify if there's if there are any crisis points. And then perhaps in that situation, do some cognitive restructuring. The other piece of a good cognitive behavioral program, though, then is skill building. There are a lot of different skills, coping skills, social skills, and so forth that go into that. And so the behavioral piece of this program is starting to use skill building to not only teach people to recognize situations to avoid, but provide them skills for managing those situations and doing so in a very action-oriented manner. And so, again, it's not enough to sit around a table and simply talk about what are you going to do the next time someone offers you drugs, but actually let's talk about concrete skills that you can use, practice them, role-play them, practice them again, get feedback on them, so they start over time to become a more automatic type of response or behavior because it's hard to do these things. So, Jacob, you're, you're nodding your head a lot over there listening to Debbie. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you see this cognitive behavioral approach as something that could be a complement to the more trauma-informed work, although often we're just doing the cognitive behavioral work in the system and, and maybe not doing the trauma-informed stuff. Right. I, that's, I think that's where I want to nudge CBT somewhat. To, okay, full disclosure, I've been trained in CBT and I use a lot of CBT in my practice, but I use it in an, art, in an artful way where it's not through a sequence of prescribed steps. I, I use the methods as they arise, like when there are automatic thoughts that need to be challenged or skill building. I do a lot of skill building in the room. But I was part of a research study where we actually had, where we taught people how to negotiate relationship ruptures. And this is very much along with the line of a trauma-informed approach because what I've learned is that when you are in a stressed out state of mind, you can't think rationally. You can't think through consequences and you don't care. I have a man in my practice, who's an incredibly highly successful surgeon, his daughter was killed by a drunk driver. And he said, if, if that guy ever comes out and if I ever see him, I'm going to kill him. And he knows the consequences. This is a, a guy with, you know, like he, he should have a good brain that can think things through. But the emotional drive that is underneath that is a thing that CBT kind of like says, it kind of tries to pe- make people reason out their emotions, when the emotions are like a weird thing that I, I still have no control over, but I think the the work is in some kind of relational holding. I do CBT, but I would do it only if the relationship is right, and I would be tracking whether or not the person is in their best self-state of mind or in their stressed self-state of mind as well. And then, I mean, is the fact that the CBT is being administered, say, by a probation officer. Or it's, I mean, it's all taking place within the context of the criminal justice system becomes another source of stress, potentially? Of course, right? Of course. And I think when I when I think about trauma-informed care and, and listening to what Jacob is saying, I sort for me, this sort of falls into this issue of responsivity, right? So we're talking about the, the type of model to use, a cognitive behavioral approach to treatment. But the reality is when we talk about effective interventions with those in the justice system, it's much more than just the treatment group. Um, and, and we often don't have the luxury of one-on-one treatments 
simply because of the numbers and the cost. And so part of that is saying that cognitive behavioral interventions and behavioral interventions tend to have the greatest effect that across the board, uh, statistically speaking, people tend to be most responsive, most successful in that type of model. But the other piece of responsivity says there is the individual, right? And that we need to be aware of that. And so if someone is, you know, having active trauma, that they're having hallucinations, they're having flashbacks, um, and, and you could speak more than I yeah, can about it's that. it's not as, even the most subtle things are that when you can tell, you can tell that a person is starting to get into that because they start glaring at you. They start to assume the worst of you, that they can't trust you. And then you can't do anything. You can't talk to them. They're not listening. Or that anything you say will be heard as an attack or a criticism. Sure. And so responsivity says we need to be mindful of that. Exactly. Right. And so it might be that someone's at a point, we can't put them into a CBT group and expect them to be successful at this point because we need to deal with some other issues and get them to a point where they can be successful. That's going to vary across the individuals that we're working with, right? Some might need some pretreatment. They might need some ongoing individual therapy, some ongoing trauma-informed care. Um, others might not. But this model, the risk-need responsivity model, says use cognitive behavioral interventions, but be mindful of these differences. And that when we do that, I don't think we do a good job of that, but when we do that, we should see improvements in effectiveness. And that's where I think these two approaches really come together nicely. I have an anecdote from a non-secure facility in Florida where I was doing evaluation work and some cons consulting. And I was in the room with 10 young men, and um, they had a behavioral token system that they liked, actually. And they found that um, it gave them clear guidelines about what's re rewarded and what's not. But they told me that the thing that really makes them lose their cool and lose points is when the lunch lady gives them half a scoop of, of food. And these are like growing boys. And like she clearly has favorites. And like it's so subtle, but th these are the things that really drive them crazy. Uh, or whenever there's a one of the officers who would come into work and you could tell that they had a bad night and they were in a bad mood and they were going to abuse the reward system to like lash out at the boys and punish them for every little infraction when they're just being boys. So the techniques are good, but then it's like teaching people how to do the techniques in, an, in a careful way that's full of care as well. I think that we overlook that in, our, in the way that we're doing implementation. And so I go, the op I go to the opposite extreme of spending 80% of my time teaching how to like clear your own heart of, of trauma and avoidance and then the techniques are easy, much easier to learn if you can track your own trauma reactivity. And I would say there is some good news on this front. And I, I've been to many facilities where you have similar types of personalities. Definitely there are those system issues. But we can talk about core correctional practices using reinforcement and understanding the value of reinforcement and being consistent in the use of reinforcement. 
using disapproval when appropriate, but using it in an effective way that's not about shaming or punishing, but really about accountability and then ultimately about behavior change, right? Having collaborative relationships, building therapeutic alliances, and that that shouldn't just be specific to the group facilitator or the therapist, but it's everyone working in the facility or in the probation office or or in the prison. And so there is work being done in this area. I just think implementation is tough. Oh. And it takes, you know, it just yeah. takes a really long time. But yeah. but I think there's an awareness of that. Even at that facility I was in, in Florida, um, I was there when uh, McDonald's raised their minimum wage to like $15 an hour and they lost a bunch of staff. Right. That just seems like that what keeps occurring to me in this uh, listening to this conversation that uh, how are we going to get to a world in the in, of a criminal justice world where you have people with the kind of training and the sensitivity of say a, a Jacob over here uh, ad administering uh, this 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 treatment that just seems like such an immense challenge a absolutely I think this is really where it's important that programs that agencies that policymakers value having people working with our youth, with adults, that have these types of qualities. So when we go out and look at programs uh, and, and maybe do an assessment of the quality of the program, one of the things that we ask about is, how do you decide who to hire? And is it that you're hiring people that are going to show up to work every day on time and they get along with others, or are you hiring people that really have a belief in change and understand um, the need to be firm but fair and, and have empathy and so forth? And we want programs to be hiring people with those types of characteristics, not just they're going to show up on time. And are they receptive to that? They, I mean, in, in, in general, is there, do you have the sense that people in this more practical minded, if we can call it that sort of criminal justice agency world, are, you know, receptive to, say, Jacob's message, if I can call it a message, I mean, and that the importance of trauma, is is that something that people you feel like are increasingly focusing on, or is there still skepticism? I think there's an increasing focus. I'm not sure that we always talk about it as trauma, right? I, I think that trauma in the criminal justice world has somewhat been associated with women, in women and girls in particular, um, and kind of we have our trauma-informed group, right? Like we're checking right. that box Because the, the, the numbers, to use numbers, I mean, show that women in particular and almost every single woman involved in the criminal justice system has just terrible histories of trauma sure. behind them and victimization, right? Yeah, but, but what I, and I, I think Jacob I'm guessing would agree with is that it's really about the approach and how we work with people. And that should be true across the board, not just for this one specific group, but again, from, from start to finish. Yeah, and I would say that um, my eyes are really starting to look at the profound impact of neglect more than like discrete violent abuse or rape or any of the other things that people usually think about when they think of trauma. That's what I work with the most. And it's we don't we don't look at it enough. And the reason why I'm thinking about that is that um, I was trying to think of an answer to your question about what we do. And um, a colleague of mine, Bessel van der Kolk, once said that um, the reason why our criminal justice system in the U.S. is so broken is because there's a huge divide. Like, we have to put a name to the fact that it's mostly black and brown people in the jails in the prison system, and. We don't think of them as family. There's an othering that's happening right now. It's another place to put them. 
It's a them. Whereas he was saying that he comes from a Nordic country, I forget which one, and he says like they're family. The people in prison are family. They're your they're your neighbor or whatever. So you treat them with more kindness. You you want to help them. We don't have that sense to us. We want to just get them out of sight. And I think it starts there. And if you have that right intention in your heart, then the policies will work. We'll invest more money in it. We'll do the things that we're learning from evidence-based practice with more care. But we can't overlook that, that right intention. We don't talk about who's in prison. We don't talk about what that experience is, about the challenges for the family members that are left at home, um, about the challenges when people come home, about the victimization that occurs, um, either overt or just by the nature of being there. We just literally sort of like lock them up and forget about them. And I think that if people start to think a bit more about the fact that these are people and they are people that are coming back to our communities and that you may engage with in one way or the other, Maybe you'll, but you will interact with these people, um, then, then maybe there is more push for changing how we do things. Because right now, it's why people don't care. Uh, I, I, a question, I guess, for, for, for both of you, I think, and it's to do, again, with this question of doing treatment and working with people in the context of, of this coercive criminal justice system, when we, the focus, I mean, certainly policymakers, the focus for them is the numbers of, is recidivism going down? But is, is you know, to what extent is getting someone to a place where they're not reoffending? is that the same thing as, as healing them? Is that, the, is that the same thing as making stronger, more resilient people? Or are those two really different goals? Yeah, so the risk-need-responsivity model, I think, often gets knocked a little bit for its focus on recidivism. And I think evaluation research sometimes gets knocked for its focus on recidivism. I don't see them as necessarily being mutually exclusive. I think that good, sound programs that are providing skill building, that are, are working at bringing families back together, that are providing training around education and employment and helping people learn the skills to get and maintain jobs that are helping to connect them to stable housing and so forth. I think all of that collectively comes together to both help improve outcomes like recidivism or perhaps drug use, but also then should help to improve lives. And I would add that along with all of that, uh, which I definitely think is super important, and we, we underappreciate how deprived people are once they come out with very little opportunity to, to like have basic needs met. I think that I won't feel happy until the person feels like they can love, feel like they, they deserve to be loved again, and that they have a purpose in life. I was at the um, Make It Happen program that the Center for Court Innovation runs in Crown Heights. And uh, these young men, they're loyal for the rest of their lives to this program. And it's not because of this, the interventions that we created for them, which are, you know, they're pretty good. I, I would imagine that they're really good, but it's the guys who run the program. Yeah, they're amazing people. Yeah, the, the, the young men are like, they want me to do something, I could, I'll do it. They want me to run through a wall, I'll do it. They're like father figures to them because they take care of them in the small ways that no one else has ever done. And uh, I was talking to these gr- this group that um, has devoted themselves to becoming champions to help other young men. And some of them said, yeah, I'll admit it. I came here because I, I had nothing else to do over the summer and I wanted 
some money. But then when they realize that their voice now has power and they learned something, like they were telling me that a cop came and taught them about how to interact with a cop. And it was such useful information that they started to just, as they're walking down the street, they would just talk to random guys who are doing things that cops would find suspicious and, and say like, yo, you got to stop doing that because cops will think you're selling drugs if you're just like playing dice in the alley. And they felt like so emboldened and empowered. And they do the work now because they finally have a purpose and a way to help and give back to their community. And that's what like get, excites them. And I think that's what helps us all stay grounded in the face of like despair and, and horror. So I, I guess after I've, I've been sitting here listening to the two of you talk and, and learning so much, and as you're talking to each other, do you, uh, can I ask if you have reflections at this point up, upon how much you think uh, the different places that you're coming from, I think you have different means, but the ends are the same, which is trying to keep, keep people out of the justice system and, and help people heal themselves. Do you think that there's room for, you know, complementarity? Be- oh, between absolutely. these approaches? Absolutely. They're not in contrast at all. It's no. just a different focus on a different facet of the same thing. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I, th- I think they they are meant to fit together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank you um, so much, both of you, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been speaking with Deborah Ketzel. She is an associate professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Jacob Hom, the director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience at New York City's Mount Sinai. For more information on this episode and all of our episodes, including some suggestions for further reading, visit our website. That's at courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. A very special thank you today for conceiving of this episode and then uh, nurturing it into existence to my colleague and uh, number one friend of the pod, Julian Adler. Technical support today provided by the sanguine Bill Harkins. Our director of design is Samiha Mia, and our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>